everyone. This is Jasmine Singer, the executive director, co-founder, and co-host of Our Hen House, a media hub producing podcasts that change the world for animals. I'm so pleased to welcome you to the second episode of the four-part audio series of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. It was a true honor to be the editor of this new anthology published by the amazing Lantern Books and Media, and it was a joy to work alongside Encompass. In particular, Ariane Shberti and Michelle Rojas Soto on bringing this book to creation. Anti-Racism and Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, is a collection of essays written by farmed animal protection advocates who are committed to exploring and prioritizing racial equity as we work to create a more just animal protection movement. We wish to document our stories and processes in an exploratory space from which we can grow and use our words to hold ourselves and our peers accountable, ultimately creating new paths forward. Those of us who contributed to this anthology were attendees of Encompass's two 2020 Racial Equity Institutes. Encompass, the nonprofit that organized the institutes, aims to make the farmed animal protection space more effective by working with white folks to operationalize racial equity, as well as by working with individual advocates of the global majority to cultivate our individual and our collective leadership. This anthology was originally an online collaboration between Encompass, Our Henhouse, and Sentient Media, and was titled Encompass Essays, Pursuing Racial Equity in Animal Advocacy. For citations of any of these essays, please visit the online version found at sentientmedia.org. Sentient Media is a robust digital platform that publishes thoughtful articles about animal agriculture and its impact on the world. You can purchase the hard copy of Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation, wherever books are sold, or find out more information at encompassmovement.org book. Oh, and don't forget to go back to the first episode to hear our very important glossary of terms. It might help you make the experience of listening easier and more enjoyable. We are pleased to present the second episode of the four-part audio series of the book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. Hi, I'm Ariana Shberti, founder and executive director of Encompass. At Encompass, we're making the farmed animal protection movement more effective by fostering racial diversity, equity, and inclusion so that everyone can bring 100% of their brilliance to work for animals. Join us at encompassmovement.org or on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncompassMVMT, short for movement. Thanks so much. Episode two, introspection. There is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. Audre Lorde. In this section, we will hear from the following four essay authors. These are the brief bios of each of them. Christopher Soul Eubanks, he, him, is a climate, human, and animal rights activist dedicated to doing advocacy work to combat all forms of oppression. Jamie Berger, she, her, is an independent documentary filmmaker and the chief of staff at Mercy for Animals. Uni Naburipad, he, him, is a wellness facilitator and animal activist based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Melina Tran, she, her, is a software engineer based in Los Angeles, California. She writes for Sentient Media, a nonprofit organization that advocates for animal rights. Her areas of focus include animal welfare, activism, culture, and identity. Now let's get to it. Hello, my name is Christopher Eubanks, and the name of my article is As a Black Man, I Felt Uncomfortable 
becoming an animal activist. As a child, I read about civil rights activists' many experiences and the onslaught of resistance they faced in their pursuit for equality and a just world. Many of them were subjected to being waterholes, having animals weaponized to attack them, and racist mobs physically and verbally abusing them as they advocated. You know the story. Racist white folks in the 1960s embraced Confederate flags, yelling slurs and chanting white power, N-word, effing N-word. But this abuse is not a thing of the past. These same slurs were yelled at me at a rodeo protest in 2020. While the racism I have experienced throughout my life has typically been more covert and systemic, this was the first time I experienced hostile, overt, aggressive racism directed at me. After doing animal rights activism for over three years and attending over 100 events, I am used to being the only Black person in the room. But this rodeo was the first time I was the only Black person surrounded by a growing mob of white people who were becoming increasingly agitated and aggressive as our protests continued. At that moment, I couldn't help but think about the civil rights activists that I learned about in school who paved the way for me to be standing where I was at that very moment. I felt a connection with them during this experience, and I know I'm not alone. After the protest, I began to reflect on how my experiences as a Black man in the United States shaped my passion for advocacy work and prepared me for moments like this. Growing up as a young Black adult in a racist society. During my teenage years, I became very aware of how race impacts not only society, but also my very own psyche. The more I began to self-educate and learn about systemic oppression, such as the school to prison pipeline, the transatlantic slave trade, and the suppression of black people's contributions to modern society, the more I began to understand the totality of white supremacy. My worldview became darker. And while I didn't have hatred toward white people as individuals, I did start to view white people collectively as a group of oppressors. Being raised in a low-income Black community and seeing predominantly white people hoard social, economic, and political power strengthened my view of the U.S. as the ultimate symbol of white supremacy. As I learned about the FBI's COINTELPRO operations, the U.S. government-sanctioned Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in Black men, and the hypercriminalization of Black people through the Rockefeller drug laws, I began to grasp how racism had now become more entrenched than ever. I also became much more aware of how often I was the only Black person surrounded by mostly whites, and I became anxious every time I was in this predicament. I often told myself I was just being aware of my surroundings, but eventually I began to distrust white people. It took years for me to understand and shed these feelings of bitterness. And I can honestly say that without this extensive internal work to overcome my anxiety, there is no way I would have been able to be a part of the animal rights movement today. Is this the animal rights movement or the movie Get Out? Being vegan can be a lonely endeavor, but being black and vegan, specifically in the animal rights community, has brought me additional isolation that I was unprepared for. Even though being the only black person in a predominantly white setting isn't new to me, it's perplexing to feel this within a social justice movement. Initially, this feeling of isolation was uncomfortable, but over time, it's become normalized, and I have found myself noticing it less and less. But I have wondered why there aren't more black people in the animal protection movement. On the surface, I understood that many marginalized people didn't feel they have the luxury of advocating for others when their own freedom is and has historically been attacked. But what I hadn't before considered was whether the animal rights movement put much effort in making black, indigenous, and people of the global majority, by PGM, feel included. On several occasions, 
I've been asked by white folks how the animal protection movement can include more black people. I understand there are good intentions behind this, but questions like this often give me mixed feelings because while I have valuable insight, I don't want my perspective to be seen as the definitive voice of all black people. Black people are not monolithic. One time, a close friend saw me participating in an animal rights march and was curious to know if any other black people were attending because she didn't see any. There were only a handful of black people in this march of close to 100 people. But that moment reminded me why it's essential for the animal protection movement to understand how we are perceived. To black people and non-vegans of all races, the animal rights movement can appear as an affluent far left group made up of people who ignore the systemic oppression they have benefited from while using that affluence to advocate for non-humans. Far too often, white animal advocates are offended when inequity within the movement is addressed, but this is constructive criticism, which they should heed to grow this movement. Had I been vegan when I was 15 or even 25, there is no way that I would have gotten involved in this cause. Beyond my introverted ways, the anxiety of being surrounded by whites would have deterred me from being involved in animal protection. I am now strengthened by the understanding that while racism has victimized generations of Black people, it has also cheated our entire society. We've all been raised in a culture that sanctions using our differences as tools of oppression. This realization made me sympathetic toward individuals who perpetuate oppressive thinking. And I now hope that one day they're able to grow beyond their toxic cultural conditioning. While I am no longer triggered when I am the only black person in the room, I'm certain that countless black people currently feel the way I felt and are apprehensive about participating in activism dominated by white people. Ignoring other oppressions does not help the animals. When I first began doing animal activism, I was inspired by an incredible black woman working at a major animal rights organization. I met her at one of the first protests I ever attended. It was comforting seeing another black activist among a predominantly white group. We talked throughout the protest and she told me about the struggles she faced helping her coworkers understand why a plant-based diet wasn't as easily accessible to black people in marginalized communities as it might be for whites. She shared various tales about how insensitive many of her coworkers were to the fragility that exists in predominantly white animal protection organizations. Although veganism can be achieved on a variety of budgets and in a variety of ways, the animal protections movement's lack of understanding about systemic issues that persist in communities of the global majority is a prime example of why this movement has to be more diverse to achieve animal liberation. We need representation at all levels. Non-human animals are systemically killed by the trillions every year, making them statistically the largest group of oppressed beings on the planet. But as humans who are advocating for them, we have to be aware of how human-based social issues impact the animal protection movement. Ignoring social justice issues allows inequity to thrive, leading to turmoil and internal conflict within the movement. Ultimately, ignoring social justice deters the progress we can make for the animals. Some white advocates feel that by addressing human rights issues in the animal protection movement, we're being counterproductive to our cause and doing a disservice to the animals. The normalization of ignoring other forms of oppression has been used to build the framework for much of the culture in the animal rights community today. While I don't believe this exclusionary approach to activism is unique to the animal rights movement, we see it starkly, especially in this moment of racial reckoning our society is facing. I understand the importance of making sure animals don't become overshadowed in the movement dedicated to them, but we must recognize that other forms of oppression further entrench the oppression of animals. Fighting for equity in animal rights is crucial in fighting for animals. Over the next 10 years, if not sooner, I hope the animal rights movement is represented fairly by, by PGM. 
I hope that current and future Black activists participating in this movement feel valued and have a safe space to share their efforts. I hope that their insights and perspectives are sought and appreciated and that they are not tokenized or exploited. The rodeo protest I attended, where I had been subjected to racial slurs, came to a turbulent end when one of the rodeo goers began cracking eggs in front of us and throwing them on the ground near our feet. At this point, daylight was long gone and we began to hear even more intense racist, sexist, and derogatory slurs as the crowd opposing our protest grew larger. The rodeo protest organizers ended up calling the police, which scared off many of our detractors. Shortly after we left, a fellow white activist attending the protest called me, apologized for the racism I experienced, and told me he was truly mortified about how I was treated. It was comforting to know that he cared enough about my experience and wanted me to know that he appreciated my dedication to the protest. I would like those working to end the exploitation of animals to understand that as long as race is used as a tool to oppress, it will continue to limit our movement's growth and our ability to help achieve liberation for all beings. Jamie Berger, and my essay is titled Racism in Me, the Movement, and the Meat Industry. We sat in the back seat of the car like kids waiting for mom to pull out of the driveway, cameras and sound equipment at the ready on our laps. Before starting up the engine, Akila, not her real name, turned around from the driver's seat to look at us, her brown eyes stoic and piercing. My heart began to race as she spoke. Typically friendly and warm, the tone of her voice had turned flat, serious. I felt my palms turn damp with sweat inside my gloves. The still, cold air inside the car suddenly felt suffocating. I don't remember her words exactly, but I know she conveyed that our repeated requests to interview her, to have her take us on this filmed driving tour of her hometown, were an imposition and that we, as white filmmakers producing a documentary about racism, must take more care in the requests we make of our subjects. Of the countless uncomfortable situations my colleague and I have experienced while creating our film about environmental racism and the pork and poultry industries in eastern North Carolina, this one stands out to me. Here was a Black woman whom we'd pressured into filming with us, Despite a challenging family situation and a more than full-time job leading a grassroots organization, bearing the added heavy burden of educating us about the impact of this ugly abuse of our privilege. I have never felt more fragile, more guilty, more ashamed than I did in that moment, but I also felt grateful. I thanked her for sharing that with us. And in the days, weeks, and months that followed, I have been profoundly grateful for the lessons I learned that day and for the experience of seeing the racism inside of me surfaced and on full display. What I hadn't realized was that my calls, emails, follow-ups, and circling backs, typical and accepted within the culture of white-dominated professional spaces, including the animal advocacy movement and filmmaking industry, were, in this context, racist harms against the very people we hope our film will support. Though we were well-intentioned in demanding to tell Akila's story on our terms instead of hers, we were exploiting her as a means to an end. But the bigger lesson I took from this experience, and many others throughout my filmmaking process, is that we animal advocates will never create the world we envision if we refuse to confront our own racism. Further, we will fail if we refuse to address racism in our food system and in society more broadly. So close you can smell it. Before that day a few years ago in the car with Akila, I had considered myself an ally in the fight against racism. 
I had studied environmental racism in college as part of my senior honors thesis on the North Carolina pork industry, and I had already spent a year or so working on my documentary on that same topic. I had researched and seen how factory farms are disproportionately located in communities of color. I had sat in the living rooms of Black residents whose health and quality of life the pork industry had devastated with decades of pollution. Listening intently to their stories of loss, intimidation, and incredible persistence, I tried not to take for granted that at the end of the day, I'd return to a place where the air was fresh and the water was safe to drink. I had also been inside several factory farms and had spent months in a region with the densest concentration of these facilities in the United States. I had grown familiar with a distinctly revolting stench of pig shit, the way it burns your eyes and embeds itself in your hair and clothes, and had become accustomed to the sight of long metal sheds and the caw of turkey vultures feasting on decaying bodies in dead boxes. I had interviewed factory farm and slaughterhouse workers and their family members, and had spent endless weeks observing, from the closest vantage point possible, the quotidian nature of this industry's churn through animal and human lives. These experiences gave me a nuanced understanding of the way the animal agriculture industry operates the means by which it exploits people and land in the pursuit of profit. I came to see the environmental and human harms this industry inflicts as equally pressing as the animal suffering it causes. All of these, I believed, were parallel symptoms of a broken food system. Meanwhile, I continued my day job at a disproportionately white animal protection organization, believing that as long as I was fighting factory farming, even from this comfortable, privileged place. I was working to correct the injustices I witnessed firsthand through my filmmaking. Racism as a business model. Akila's comment had put a crack in my self-perception as an ally. But it wasn't until the summer of 2020, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the racial uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement, that I, like many white people, took a larger step forward to confront my whiteness, my own racism, and the racism embedded in the animal protection movement. I marched among thousands in the streets of Washington, D.C., and read Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist and other books and articles on racism. I began listening more intently to Black, Indigenous, and People of the Global Majority, BIPGM, leaders in our movement and beyond. I asked, along with my colleagues, for the formation of a Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice, DEIJ, committee, and other changes to internal policies and practices. And I looked inward, reckoning with my race and the arbitrary advantages it affords me, asking myself why it took me so long, despite my previous experiences, to see racism so plainly in myself, to better understand my role in upholding white supremacy in society and in the animal protection movement. It has only been with this clearer, though still very much in progress, lens of understanding that I have been able to reflect on my activism and filmmaking work to see what I had long overlooked and what many advocates of the global majority have always known. Racism, I realized, is not a side effect of industrial animal agriculture. It is the modern meat industry's entire business model, the foundation upon which this industry runs. Racism is the industry's primary source of wealth and power. By refusing to address the meat industry's racism and our own, Many white animal advocates, including myself, have been complicit in the very system of oppression we say we want to dismantle. We are replicating the meat industry's power structure within our own movement. Redistributing this power in both sectors is the only way to achieve our goal of creating a more compassionate world. I realized 
looking back at the harm I'd seen in eastern North Carolina, that factory farming would simply not exist if the animal agriculture industry were not able to exploit and commodify Black, Brown, and Indigenous lives. I saw that this industry is deeply entwined with other racist institutions, like the criminal justice system, designed to maintain white supremacy. Cops and pigs. With a more anti-racist lens, I looked back at the experiences I'd had making my documentary and connected the dots I hadn't before. I remembered how one of our interviewees, a Black woman who lives among dozens of factory farms, had shown us how she places cardboard in her windows at night for protection should someone decide to shoot her from outside her home. She has good reason to be fearful. Over the years of standing up to the farm owners around her and the industry at large, she has been followed, harassed, and surveyed. After leaving her home, my colleague and I were filming the factory farm next door when a sleek car with heavily tinted windows pulled over on the road across from us. We could tell the driver was holding a cell phone up to the windshield, likely recording us as we filmed from a public road, a herd of cattle munching on grass, quote, fertilized by pig poop from the nearby lagoon. Disturbed, we drove a few hundred feet down the road to park and get our bearings before carrying on. Fewer than three minutes had passed when several police cars, including a sheriff's vehicle, surrounded us, blocking us in from all sides. We had done nothing illegal, but this display of power and suppression had its intended effect. My stomach churned with panic as a white officer questioned me about our motives and activities in the area. They let us go, but not without a less than kind suggestion to be careful about filming in the area, lest we stir up trouble. Had we not been white, the situation might have ended quite differently. As it turns out, the factory farm we had filmed was originally owned by a county sheriff and is still operated by his family. In this case, and in many other rural communities in eastern North Carolina, the pork industry and local law enforcement are one and the same. Working as one oppressive force, they've created a culture of intense fear in these communities and have successfully maintained a white supremacist system that their slave-owning great-grandparents enacted. Sometime later, not far from that farm, we saw a sheriff's car parked at a home proudly adorned with a Confederate flag. Nothing without Black lives. Reflecting on this incident during the summer of 2020, when discussions of police brutality permeated our society and movement like never before, I shuddered at comments from some of my fellow white animal advocates that we should stay silent, that there is no connection between race-driven police violence and our mission to end factory farming. The more I examine our movement with an anti-racist lens, the more I am trying to challenge the belief behind this idea, one embedded in my early activism that is still dominant within historically white-led and white-majority organizations. It's the notion that we must focus narrowly on our mission to reduce animal suffering and therefore ignore human suffering or risk upsetting donors, losing our nonprofit status and diminishing the all important impact of our work. But to say that centering racial justice and our work against factory farming is a divergence from our mission is nonsensical and counterproductive. Like racist North Carolina cops and the pork industry, the oppression of animals is not separate from the oppression of humans. They are one system, a system designed by whites to amass and retain power over all others. Examples of this are all around us. Take, for instance, fast food chain Popeye's tweet in response to the protests following George Floyd's murder. Quote, we are nothing without black lives. True, Popeye's and other fast food retailers overwhelmingly white-led companies that sell unhealthy, meat-heavy food that contributes to an epidemic of chronic disease, would not have the profit margins they do if they did not market to Black consumers, locate disproportionately in Black communities, 
or refuse to pay their workers a livable wage. Similarly, major meat companies would be far less profitable if they did not rely heavily on black, brown, immigrant, and prisoner labor in their factory farms and slaughter plants. They've learned they can pay these workers less to do work that is twice as dangerous as the average job in America. The astronomical rates of COVID-19 among slaughterhouse workers and the industry's effort to shift blame onto workers, quote, living circumstances in certain cultures, unveil its racism and illustrate just how little value this industry places on its workers' lives. In North Carolina, the pork industry exploded in the late 1980s and 1990s in Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities, aided by the legacy of slavery and modern-day racist policies that stripped these communities of their power to fight back. Only when the industry made the mistake of planning to build a factory farm near a golf resort, where its pollution and stench would have threatened a white community, did politicians enact a moratorium on new construction. Today, the North Carolina pork industry continues to control the state's legislature by funding many of the same politicians working diligently to restrict voting rights, gerrymander districts, and otherwise dismantle the state's democracy, all in an effort to further disempower its most marginalized citizens. As a movement, we say we believe in creating a just and equitable food system where all animals are respected and free. But we must recognize that we will only realize this future if we are also willing to address the human exploitation upon which our current food system operates. Weak alone, strong together. Some might argue, and indeed many white animal protection movement leaders have argued, that other organizations exist to address racism in our food system and in society, and therefore we have little obligation to confront this issue. This is not only naive to the inherent interconnectedness of oppressions, but it is also based on the false, individualistic belief that animal advocates can do this work in isolation and that we can achieve our mission alone. To think that we, a tiny movement of people who cuddle with chickens and see fish as friends, can reform a global trillion-dollar industry by ourselves is preposterous and self-aggrandizing. It is also misguided to think that disproportionately white animal protection organizations operating in isolation have all or even most of the answers. Our homogenous nature doesn't just limit our creativity, effectiveness, and productivity. If we don't meaningfully partner with the people closest to the problem of factory farming, slaughterhouse workers, rural communities, victims of food apartheid, contract farmers, and others, we'll also exclude those who have the most to gain from addressing this problem, likely have the best ideas and approaches about how to solve it, or who might even be able to reform the system from the inside. People power is essential to our success. We will only achieve our mission to create a better food system when we help build a broader, deeply interconnected movement, one inclusive of and created by and for by PGM. But as I learned from Akila's challenge, white animal advocates will never be able to fight alongside by PGM effectively if we perpetuate oppression ourselves. Unless we take a hard look at our own racism and the ways we uphold white supremacy in our organizations and society, we will only do more harm, even if we have good intentions. What will it take? Looking forward, I've begun to ask myself and others around me the question, what will it really take for animal advocates to help build this equitable and interdependent movement? We are beginning to see shifts in the way some of the disproportionately white animal protection organizations operate, as we are starting to reckon with our racist former practices, like targeting only wealthy, educated white women with our outreach, preaching how incredibly easy it is to adopt a vegan diet overnight, operating on unpaid intern labor, 
or pursuing criminal charges against factory farm and slaughterhouse workers instead of aiming at the system itself. This is laudable progress, but we have much more work to do to uncover and uproot racism in our approaches, policies, and cultures. For global organizations, this includes looking at our structures and asking whether we are operating with a colonialist framework. It includes reviewing our key programs from welfare reform to outreach and asking hard questions about the impact of this work on marginalized communities. In crafting our visions, missions, and strategies, we must ask, in building a better world for animals, what humans might we risk leaving behind? How can we instead build a better world for and with them too? Many of us, myself included, have only just started evaluating the inequitable distribution of wealth within our movement. I recently led a program to provide grants to Black activists, but this redistribution of resources represents only a tiny step toward correcting a profound imbalance of funding. Anecdotal but worth noting, the combined annual budgets of the organizations with which the 48 applicants to this program are affiliated amount to only $2.3 million, a fraction of the budget of my own organization. Like the racial wealth gap in society more broadly, the one within our movement demands dedicated introspection and bold action, up to and including tangible sacrifices. Many white-led and white-majority animal protection nonprofits must also learn the important difference between being partisan and being political. To avoid being partisan, supporting a specific political candidate or party, is responsible. To avoid being political is to choose the side of the oppressor. We must boldly call out and take real action against injustice and white supremacy, and we must wholeheartedly join the fight to preserve democracy, as its collapse threatens everything we do. Educating our base is critical, but the loss of some followers and supporters along the way must not deter us. After all, it was our own white supremacist approach that brought them into our fold initially. Finally, it may sound simple, but some of the most important work we must do is the quiet, contemplative work of confronting and breaking down, piece by piece, our own racism. Last summer, as I moved more deliberately through that work, a quote from the author, poet, and activist Sonia Renee Taylor struck me to my core. Quote, I don't want an ally, because an ally means you came here to help me. How are you helping me solve the problem you caused? Why aren't I helping you solve the problem you caused? Why am I not the ally and you the actor? Why is blackness the responsibility holder and whiteness gets to be the helper? My conversation with Akila in the car was like looking in the mirror. I saw an ally, a fragile white woman, offering the most unhelpful help. Now, when I look inside, the image of an ally is fading. Instead, I see someone striving to be an actor. My name is Uninya Budaripad, and the name of my essay is How My Cultural Identity Informs My Animal Advocacy. When I was 10 years old, I was visiting family in India and met a kitten named Bobby who would change my life forever. I didn't know it at the time, but later, after much soul searching and a deep dive into social justice movement dominated by white people, I realized that it was meeting that sweet little kitten that sent me on my journey of animal advocacy and eventually to recognizing how my Indian heritage was its driving force. My parents were born and raised in India and I have visited family and traveled there every few years from my home in Minnesota. When we'd visit, my cousin Narayanan would watch over my brother Krishnan and me. He would show us many aspects of living a full life, such as having us taste the leaves of a nearby allspice tree, which had not yet provided seeds. The leaves taste like the spice. Even now, I smile when I think of how nonplussed Narayanan appeared, bringing his communication and gentleness that, years later, I still value. 
Narayanan befriended a semi-feral kitten whom he named Bobby after one of his favorite chess players. Bobby was sweet and friendly, and Krishnan and I were totally smitten. Thinking we were just playing, we threw this little kitty higher and higher in the air until Narayanan said to us, if you keep doing that, Bobby will die. My brother and I were gobsmacked. We thought we were just having fun. We were mortified. The liberation of animals. Krishnan and I didn't realize it, but we were being cruel to this precious individual, this darling cat. As soon as I connected the dots, that this gentle soul was as sentient as me and my human friends, I felt ashamed, despite Narayanan's non-judgmental tone, which later became a touchstone for my own approach to activism. Until that moment when I was confronted with my own unintentionally cruel behavior, I hadn't thought of myself as someone who would be cruel to any animal. A decade later, as an adult, I happened across Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, a game-changing read that helped launch the modern animal protection movement in the West, and immediately got involved in advocating for animals. I appreciated the clear logic and methodical thinking, and I saw new horizons of understanding the world and my place in it. But I didn't ponder my own story or think about Bobby. It wasn't until several years later when I was reflecting on that particular visit to India and latching onto that experience with Bobby that I realized it was, in fact, that cat, as well as my cultural heritage, that were the driving forces behind my animal advocacy, even more so than the philosophy presented in animal liberation. I suddenly saw everything differently. For the first time in my advocacy, I recognized, without a doubt, that the main protagonist in my story was me a white construct. When I learned the truths about what happens to animals behind closed doors, it was as powerful as when I learned that Bobby was sentient and that it was my job to protect him. And so I found myself getting involved in animal advocacy, which, as it turned out, is a predominantly white movement. The animal advocacy campaigns that I participated in framed our work as rational. The goal was simple, to carefully determine the best ways to reduce suffering in the world. That logic called me and I wanted to do my part. So I showed up to protests, to grassroots events, to vigils. I actively participated in the storyline that my fellow animal advocates deduced were the best ways to reduce suffering in the world. While that is a worthwhile goal, what I didn't see was that the values and reasoning the animal advocates used were centered on the beliefs and experiences of mostly white people and were flawed by their very nature. By taking part in campaigns that were organized by white people, based on research that was conducted by white people, and influenced by books that were written by white people, I helped perpetuate the myth that the way to help animals was by doing things the prescribed way, the white way. This was further underlined by my emphasizing the philosophies, experiences, and stories of white people who are often in leadership positions in the animal protection movement as I knew it. Where did my brown skin and my very own perspective enter the story? Was it ever sought out? And adjacent cause. Parallel to my animal advocacy, I became involved in other important causes, promoting clean energy, challenging sexual violence, and advocating for workers' rights. Through these activism channels, I was able to attend several anti-racism workshops and work alongside a diverse group of people. These eye-opening experiences introduced me to new ways of thinking and living. At workshops and conventions, participants would often ponder questions such as, what's our story? How do we get here? Where do we go from here? As it turns out, the stories that make us unique are the same ones that make us activists. I had never considered that before. Only when I did, did I recognize that my experience with Bobby the Cat Recognizing his sentience, understanding my power to help or hurt, was my first concrete belief in the sanctity of all living beings. My journey into these adjacent social justice realms was indeed changing me, causing me to reflect on my animal advocacy, amongst other things. As I began to analyze my role in this movement to help non-human animals, I started to recognize that my own path to animal advocacy was, in fact, not led by white folks or folks from the West. Finally, I was seeing things clearly. It was my heritage that got me here. Whitewashed. My Indian heritage is a long history of 
treating certain animals with compassion and respect. As one example, vegetarianism has been in my family for countless generations. When my parents came to North America, their traditional religious and cultural practices were fading, becoming whitewashed, much like my own view of animal advocacy later would. My mother continued to be a vegetarian, and all of us ate vegetarian food at home, but nothing drove the rest of us to abstain from meat outside of the house. Like so many others, in this way, we were sleeping. We were letting the culture of the West influence how we behaved, how we showed up in the world, and the ways we rationalized our behavior. Of course, vegetarianism and then veganism restarted for me as an adult. It turns out that my lineage had played a greater role in my commitment to ending animal suffering than I initially understood. I just needed to reconnect with my roots in order to reconnect with my advocacy. But this time, it was my own experiences, not the ones written about by a white man, that informed my activist beliefs and tactics. Our movement's limitations. Black, indigenous, and people of the global majority, by PGM, have always been involved in animal advocacy, both in the United States and around the world. However, most of the attention from the media and even within the movement focuses on the work led by white people. Even I let that societal norm be my guiding light until it wasn't. This reliance on the white experience has limited the power of the animal advocacy movement and kept us from considering the myriad approaches and beliefs regarding animal advocacy. We have inadvertently placed the white worldview on top, which is exactly what happens in our society when there's not a conscious effort to look at things another way. The white-led animal protection movement has also avoided facing the suffering and oppression that by PGM experience, which ultimately has been holding us back from creating a more just and fair way forward. This has significantly limited our collective power to create systemic change for animals, and it's time for me to get involved in a different way. A new way forward. I am genuinely grateful for anybody who is advocating for animals. Many of them are my role models but I also see more powerful opportunities for creating lasting change. Prioritizing equity and turning the table on white-led constructs will lead to a more effective movement, one that can have an even greater ability to help animals. The way out of the limitations we have built is surprisingly simple. Look to buy PGM who are already doing the work for the animals and support them, fund them, and get behind them. Specifically, individuals and organizations in the animal protection movement can seek out opportunities to provide funding for groups led by people of the global majority. Our movement can prioritize the goals, aspirations, and values of communities of the global majority who are working to end animal suffering. We can focus on providing leadership opportunities, jobs, and board seats to buy PGM. Supporting buy PGM, amplifying these voices, is a path to helping more animals and to creating a more equitable and powerful movement. It took decades for me to recognize Bobby's influence on my life and help me to see animal advocacy and my own life story in a different light. My name is Melina Tran, and the title of my essay is The Need for Ethical Consistency in Animal Advocacy. In March of 2019, I attended my first event hosted by a local chapter of Anonymous for the Voiceless, known as AV, an animal rights organization focused on public education and outreach. Activists showcase standard but horrific footage of factory farms and slaughterhouses, engaging the wide-eyed public in conversations about the dismal experiences of farmed animals and the necessity of adopting a vegan lifestyle. Afterward, I posted a group photo from the event on my Instagram account. The photo showed upward of 40 activists, surprisingly the majority being vegans of the global majority, under a Moreton Bay fig tree in a primarily Spanish-speaking historical plaza in Los Angeles. Participating in collective action was not unfamiliar to me, but never had I imagined myself advocating for animals. Members of the activist community were compassionate and like-minded, but I was especially surprised to find a vegan group that actually reflected the demographics of our city, my hometown. I was so inspired seeing so many activists from such diverse backgrounds, teaching and spreading knowledge, read my Instagram caption. 
Becoming hashtag vegan was a personal lifestyle choice that came from learning more about the impacts of consuming meat and dairy on my health, animals, our communities, and our earth. Over the next several months, I attended AV events in Hollywood and Santa Monica. Bolstered by the positive experiences I had advocating for animals and heartened by activists of the global majority who had also come out that day to lend their voices, something began to change in me. I became emboldened, growing increasingly comfortable speaking to bystanders about the suffering endured by farmed animals and responding to anti-vegan comments with a level-headedness I was proud of. Compelled to action and feeling a sense of camaraderie with our new activist friends, my husband Gerard and I stepped up as co-organizers of a new chapter in Los Angeles. A year later, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the uprisings, AV posted a photo on Instagram of a Black protester holding up a bloodied pig's head. The caption read, hypocrisy is protesting against rights violations while violating the rights of others. Many were appalled by the organization's lack of sensitivity and stance, which the social media coordinator, George Martin, defended by commenting that there are many people who believe systemic oppression does not exist in the West. While the organization later deleted the controversial post and issued an apology for the latter comment, its stance on crossover was clear. In a post shared on social media in June of that year, AV co-founder Paul Bashir stated, when vegans say that veganism is also about humans because we're also animals, tell them to stay the fuck in their lane. Stay the fuck away from animal rights. This is ruining our movement. It's a non-human rights movement. Ethical inconsistency in veganism. For vegans and animal rights activists, especially those who have engaged in public outreach and conversations about veganism, The phrase ethical consistency may be familiar. The concept, essentially the opposite of hypocrisy, is central to a debate tactic that vegans employ when arguing against non-vegans. The basic premise involves pointing out the contradiction of participating in the exploitation of animals, such as eating animals, while holding beliefs that are against exploitation, such as believing that animal testing, wearing fur, or dog fighting is wrong. Sometimes this approach works and a person will reconcile the inconsistency and choose to become vegan. Non-intuitively, there are a number of people who are open-minded and caring enough to become vegan, yet are simultaneously unable to budge on topics that most people find objectionable, such as various human rights abuses. Racist vegans, those who do not reject, resist, or otherwise work to dismantle racism in our society, even if they are unaware of it, exists because vegans are a product of society at large. They have not only surfaced as protesters took to the streets in defense of Black lives, but did so at the onset of the pandemic using xenophobic and racist rhetoric. They are not exempt from accountability for ethical inconsistency or scrutiny just because they are sensitive to the suffering of animals. Rather, their presence in animal advocacy creates an environment that is dangerous and unwelcoming for marginalized people in an already inequitable space. Although plant-based eating has been practiced in various parts of the world, and was especially so prior to colonization, the word and concept of veganism were officially coined in 1944 in the United Kingdom. While vegans are often generalized as middle class and white, the black community is the fastest growing demographic in the vegan community. Given that the professional animal rights movement is predominantly white, propped up by white men as key figures of the movement, the lack of empathy toward marginalized communities is disappointing, but not surprising. An animal rights movement centered on animals is critical, yet being unaware of how oppression operates especially to the point of condemning those who have a cross-sectional approach to their advocacy, is detrimental to animal rights altogether. Being able to mobilize people for animal rights requires engaging with those who can empathize with the cause and can see themselves belonging to the movement. Contrary to the notion that discussing race dilutes animal rights, ignoring their connection undermines animal rights, which at its core is a social justice movement. The animal category. The notion that human liberation and animal liberation are intertwined is not new, especially among those who identify with oppressed groups. 
the rise in veganism and recent social unrest resulting from anti-Black racism has peeled back the layers of how systems of oppression are more connected than disparate. Oppression does not exist in a vacuum. Perceiving animals as separate from and inferior to humans, invoking an us versus them mentality has normalized their abuse. It is acceptable in society to farm animals for food, train racehorses for entertainment, and imprison exotic animals in zoos and aquariums. In other words, animal abuse has become institutionalized. In Afroism, essays on pop culture, feminism, and Black veganism from two sisters, authors Af and Silco write, animal is a category that we shove certain bodies into when we want to justify violence against them. The animal category manifests itself in the human species when dominant groups subjugate marginalized people. When people are viewed as animals, objectifying and harming them become justified actions. Historical and contemporary examples include, but are not limited to, the detention of undocumented migrants and the policing, incarceration, and killing of Black people. For instance, In 1989, five Black and Latino teenagers from Harlem were wrongly convicted of brutally raping a woman in New York City's Central Park. At the time, the media played an outsized role in portraying them as feral animals, wreaking havoc in the park as a wolf pack. Donald J. Trump even took out full-page ads in newspapers, calling for the death penalty and saying, they should be forced to suffer. And when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. Despite the case's glaring lack of DNA evidence and eyewitnesses, mired by coercive tactics from the police, the jury found all five teenagers guilty. By the time the convictions were vacated in 2002, the Central Park Five had collectively served 40 years in prison for a crime they had not committed. The call to violence and death, the heinous treatment, and the act of gross injustice toward these young boys is what happens when bodies are shoved into the animal category. The Central Park Five case is far from being an isolated incident as it represents an institutionalized system that codifies a group of people as being non-human. When marginalized communities are viewed as less than human, they are viewed as animals, a linguistic shorthand for an inferior being that can rightfully be controlled, commodified, and harmed. Read, dirty as a pig, kill two birds with one stone, bigger fish to fry, be a guinea pig, and more. Achieving collective liberation. Advocating for animal rights and fighting for human rights by combating racism, sexism, transphobia, and other injustices can strengthen each cause. When society no longer views animals as inferior and undeserving of basic rights, such as the right to bodily autonomy, dignity and respect can be restored to all sentient beings. We can radically reimagine our relationship to each other as humans, regardless of our differences, as well as to animals and the environment. Meat processing plants are life-threatening and injurious workplaces that exploit migrants especially those who are undocumented and people living in poverty. Workers endure psychological trauma and have high rates of suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, PTSD, depression and anxiety, and may be subject to domestic violence. During the pandemic, these processing plants have become hotbeds for coronavirus outbreaks, further endangering workers' lives and leading to deaths that could have otherwise been prevented. A world that does not practice slaughtering animals and the harm inflicted upon humans by the animal agriculture industry. In the United States, an end to the hog industry in North Carolina would cease to contaminate natural resources and sicken low-income Black communities. Closing leather tanneries in countries such as India and Bangladesh would mean that hazardous chemicals would no longer disable and disfigure workers, especially children. In impoverished communities where chronic illnesses are prevalent and diets are unhealthy due to a lack of healthy food access and nutrition education, plant-based diets can help prevent illnesses such as cancer, diabetes, and heart diseases. Likewise, the fight for human rights can positively impact animal advocacy. In a world that respects women and female bodies, it is hard to imagine that dairy and egg industries, which exploit the reproductive system of female cows and hens, would thrive. 
Overcoming racism, which is the belief in racial superiority to justify discrimination toward people based on physical appearances, may help us overcome speciesism, in which discrimination involves treating members of one species as more morally important than any other. Think about how we treat domestic animals, such as dogs and cats, for example, very differently from farmed animals like pigs, chickens, and cows on the basis of species alone. These systems of oppression, whether races, sexes, classes, or speciesist, represent historical and institutionalized mistreatment toward non-dominant groups. This is not to suggest that promoting veganism alone ensures the total end of harm, exploitation, and violence. Nor is this a reductionist approach to solving complex social issues. Rather, dismantling oppression would need to occur concurrently, systemically, across all facets of society. Liberation is, after all, not zero-sum. Rights being granted to one group are often granted to another. For instance, the civil rights movement in the mid-20th century sought to end racial discrimination under the law. Victories benefited not just the Black community, but all marginalized communities. Across race, gender, nationality, and religion, and the fight for equality in voting, employment, and housing. Similarly, the Black Power movement of the late 1960s and 1970s, which emphasized pride in racial identity and self-determination, also influenced and empowered Chicano, Puerto Rican, Asian, Indigenous, and LGBTQIA communities. When one group wins, we all win. To be unaware of the historical legacy of social justice and political movements is to believe that causes are unrelated and there is a scarcity of resources and to insist on a single track approach to advocacy. In the words of Black feminist writer Audre Lorde, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. The work ahead of us. The work to achieve justice for all members of our society, humans and non-humans alike, will span our lifetimes. Although the path ahead may seem filled with uncertainty, we can all individually contribute to achieving collective liberation in our own ways. In an interview with Leica Magazine, AFCO expressed the opinion that all efforts are essential. Revolution won't happen without thought. However, thought without action won't make the revolution a reality. Take the time to learn about different issues that affect various marginalized communities. If you identify as a person of color or a person of the global majority, this includes communities other than your own. This is not an effort to diminish the lived experiences of those who occupy multiple spaces or to place the burden of responsibility on those who identify with oppressed groups, but a beckoning for everyone, especially white people, to learn about others. Listen, reflect, and improve your behavior as a result of what you've learned from marginalized communities. Confront your own biases and learn about the histories, legacies, and pressing issues of groups that are not your own, whether through podcasts, books, or articles, the resources available to learn about other communities are innumerable. Consider withdrawing support from and boycotting companies that exploit animals or violate human rights. Voting with one's dollars can have an immense impact. This applies to both food companies, yes, even vegan ones, as well as everyday businesses and companies like Amazon, Walmart, and Uber, all of whom exploit their workers. When done in concert, boycotts can be leveraged to achieve workers' rights, as in the case of the historical Delano Grape Strike, led by Filipino and Latino farm workers. The Food Empowerment Project is a nonprofit organization that not only promotes a vegan lifestyle, but also sheds light on ethical food choices and provides educational resources to consumers about companies that engage in exploitative practices. It is important to be mindful of one's consumer choices. If we want to live in a world where workers are treated fairly and respectfully, an environment free of harassment and hazards, with pay and benefits to achieve a quality standard of life, then we as consumers need to actively shape this world. Lastly, hold your fellow vegans accountable to be ethically consistent. Although being vegan can lead to a greater sense of compassion, this is not always the case. Be willing to question and have difficult conversations with friends and reconsider your support of activists and organizations that hold problematic views regarding marginalized communities. Ethical consistency is a goal to work toward every single day, rather than a checkbox that is ticked when a vegan lifestyle is adopted. In working purposefully, aligning our values with our actions, and making ethical decisions driven by our moral conscience, we can transform ourselves and the world. 
This concludes the second episode of the four-part audio series of Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. This book is a collaboration between Lantern Publishing and Media, Encompass, Sentient Media, and Our Hen House. Stay tuned next week for the third episode, which focuses on accountability. Throughout the month of October 2021, every Thursday, we will be publishing a new episode of this four-part series in addition to our regularly scheduled weekly Our Hen House podcast and our monthly Animal Law podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jasmine Singer, the editor of this anthology, the author of the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan, and the author of the memoir, Always Too Much and Never Enough. I'm also the co-host of the award-winning Our Hen House podcast, an editor and columnist at Veg News Magazine, the VP of Editorial at Kinder Beauty, and a longtime animal activist and public speaker. I am so pleased to have brought this audio series to you through Our Hen House. We truly appreciate everyone who participated in this project and for making the audio series happen. Special thanks to the essay authors featured on this episode for taking the time to record with us, and to Amy Lubert for her help in coordinating it, and Jen Riley for her work in producing this series, to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for editing, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez and Marianne Sullivan of Our Hen House for their support, and to our flock for their cheerleading. Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit. If you believe in the power of independent media and you want to change the world for animals, we hope you will consider supporting our efforts and joining the flock, which you can do at ourhenhouse.org. Many benefits come with joining the Our Hen House flock, including live monthly virtual get-togethers to discuss activism and have more intimate conversations with recent podcast guests, weekly bonus content just for you, exclusive access to the Our Hen House Facebook group, and the opportunity to meet with me one-on-one to discuss your change-making endeavors. If you're not already familiar with Our Hen House, tune into our podcast. You can find the Our Hen House podcast and the Animal Law podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And check us out on social media or visit us at ourhenhouse.org. <laughs>